Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. This week on Miranda Warnings, we have Scott Maloof. Scott's a solo practitioner in Pittsburgh, New York. He's a social media lawyer, and his practice includes providing social media litigation advice to other attorneys. Scott is also the co-chair of the New York State Bar Association's Social Media Committee. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you, Scott. There's a lot of issues we we need to discuss regarding social media. Uh, We're seeing uh, censorship now in social media. Twitter has recently started putting warning labels on certain tweets that violate its policy. And then in response, President Trump signed an executive order trying to remove certain protections that Twitter enjoys under the Communications Decency Act. So tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on here with uh, social media and censorship and and what rights do social media organizations have to censor content that they find either offensive or harmful to its users? Right. Uh, the big issue is we're seeing a collision with the very freewheeling nature of the platforms and the use by the very broad set of users. When you take a step back and think about it, You have the platforms that have users from around the world and of all political stripes. And so it's very difficult for the platforms to step in and do the moderation that individuals might expect to see, you know, either in their personal life, what kind of information they get from a news station or a newspaper, you know, versus what they're seeing online, which can be very difficult. And I think the president's tweets have have brought this to a head. Because it's something that before the rise of social media, we would not have seen in, in more traditional platforms. And that's, that's probably a good framework for us to analyze it and get into the law of how those platforms do their moderation. Well, yeah, well, let's talk about the law a little bit. Uh, we've got the Communications Decency Act, uh, Section 230, which came from the 90s, uh, which provided that there would be no liability um, to these internet uh, service companies for content created by users of their services. So let's talk a little bit about why that was put in place and and how the executive order may or may not impact it. Right. So if we take a step back, uh, we go back to the 1990s. And at that time, the internet was not at all what it is now, as as anyone who, who was around and using tools knows. And In those days, um, before Section 230, you had two really interesting cases that came out of New York uh, talking about what kind of liability would the internet service providers, uh, in that case CompuServe and Prodigy, face for activities by individuals on on their platforms. The CompuServe case, which is a Southern District case, said, you know, these internet service providers are going to be treated as distributors. And so they will only face liability in certain situations. And then the second case, Stratton Oakmont, which involved, you know, that's the Wolf of Wall Street law firm. And uh, it said, right, as long as these platforms are not engaging in any kind of um, moderation, then there's not going to be liability. In that situation, I believe um, Prodigy was moderating. They were trying to remove certain kinds of language and other kinds of materials. And 
once that comes down, that case like that, the platform who wants to remove this objectionable material has an incentive not to, because as soon as they start making some of those decisions, they could face liability for what third parties are doing. And let's just talk really quickly about why moderation is important. We've heard a lot about neutrality and, and, and hands-off, but if you do not have moderation, if you don't have platforms running things, you're going to see spam and viruses posted. You're going to see a ton of junk posted, you know, solicitations. Uh, you're going to see pornography and similar, as well as categorically false information that could harm people. For example, people posting the election date is November 8th, when in fact it really is November 7th. So that's why moderation is so important. And what Section 230 tried to do is step in and create federal law that helped services like this, who were in their infancy at the time, for the most part, figure out how can we moderate but not be liable for behavior because of that moderation. And we can kind of walk through some of what Section 230 does if you want to do that. Yeah, right. And so, you know, what happened after Prodigy was uh, the internet services would say, okay, if we do any moderation at all, uh, even the most minimal, we could be hit for liability for something that we don't catch, potentially. Uh, And uh, so then they, you know, either risk exposure or completely stop doing any moderation, which wasn't really good for anybody or for uh, free speech. Uh, So then we had the Communications Decency Act step in and say, okay, you know, we're going to provide an exemption here uh, for uh, internet service companies for content placed on its site by users. And now my understanding is that the executive order that um, President Trump just signed uh, is attempting to abrogate um, that uh, exemption from liability. Right. Let's walk through what 230 actually does. And so to solve that, that problem of the, of the service provider being disincentivized from moderating, what 230 did was create a federal law, you know, a section of a federal law, which says the platforms are not liable for content posted by users. So if I go on Facebook and I defame you, the platform's not liable. I can't sue Facebook. But it also said the platforms can make those editorial choices without losing that immunity. A couple of things it doesn't require, because we're seeing a lot of points about that, does not require neutrality, okay? Nor does it cover federal crimes. You know, platforms can still be responsible for federal crimes that that they're involved in. And of course, as you know, it doesn't cover certain intellectual property. That that works out under, under other law. So what's the executive order do? So if we take a look at the executive order that just came out, as you alluded to, the president made a couple of tweets and, and Twitter put up information saying the information the president's providing about mail-in balloting is, we believe, incorrect. And so here are links to go back and see what we believe is, is better information about the safety and security of mail-in balloting. Balloting. Yeah, right. Actually, the statement, you know, he made some statements about mail-in uh, balloting right? Uh, and uh, that were very strong statements. And then, you know, Twitter said, just had a warning label at the bottom that says, get the facts about mail-in ballots. Uh, and then if you click that warning label, you could get a link to uh, the real information. Right. You get links to, to kind of a, a Twitter news uh, column. 
that gives you, you know, the fact that the president's statements were unsubstantiated and some right. additional information. Right. So the response to that, many think, is the executive order that came out recently. Uh, and the executive order has about eight sections. We're just going to hit a few of the highlights of it. Um, in section two, it talked about the FCC issuing clarifications for section 230. Now, mind you, the FCC actually has no role in section two in interpreting section 230. They don't make any kind of regulatory guidance. So that's a bit of a, a bit of a misnomer there. Uh, section three asks federal agencies to report on their online advertising. Section four says large platforms should not restrict speech. And then there are um, bias reports that had been collected by, by the White House and it sends those to the DOJ and FTC and encourages the FTC to use its uh, unfair enforcement or unfair business practices powers under the FTC Act. Section 5 asks, asks the USAG to form a working group with state AGs to investigate using laws to regulate internet service uh, providers. And then Section 7 has a kind of a broad definition of online platforms, you know, which would broaden the scope or the ambit uh, as alleged in uh, this executive order. So we've talked a little bit about some of the problems. Should we go through kind of what some of those problems from this executive order are? Yes. Yeah, we should. I mean, I think the first issue is whether the executive order has the legal authority to uh, overrule or change uh, the, the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, which was, you know, entered into law through Congress and as a statute on the books, does the executive order have the ability to overrule uh, a congressional statute that's been on the books for, you know, over 20 years? <laughs> you know, it's rare that as lawyers, we can give simple answers, but uh, this one's a no. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, simply put, you know, it's black letter law that the president cannot use an executive order to, to un, you know, to undo a statute. That's, you know, the prerogative of the legislative branch. So, and secondly, I think that points to one of the biggest problems, both of this executive order and the president's conduct more generally, which is the corrosive nature of it in that it issues an executive order. It's, it, you know, it should be known that it can't do a lot of the things it promises to do. And then that creates people being very frustrated and asking really what's going to go down here. And is this an attempt to, to scare or silence platforms who are trying to provide information that says what's been said is not correct. So I think that's, that's the big issue to me is just, it's a continuing of, the corrosion of a lot of the implicit or implied standards that we've had for governance in the country for a long time. And we have to be super careful about using the powers, even if they're, even if they're going to provide, you know, political succor to your, to your allies, that it hurts the overall and the bigger system, similar to attacking judges, you know, based upon, upon their characteristics. That's the biggest frustration I see with this. I think what's interesting. So as you stated, it's pretty clear that the executive order can't overrule the statute. But there's a couple of things in this executive order that executive orders can do yeah. um, that perhaps could uh, either diminish uh, the uh, protections under the law or perhaps provide some harassment of social media companies that don't comply with, you know, Trump's wishes. Uh, there's it, there's provisions in the executive order that we should talk about about funding 
There's provisions in here, as you said, about using government agencies to monitor what social media companies are doing, um, both of which I think um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, A, their effectiveness, and B, you know, whether that's an appropriate uh, item for an executive order. Right. And I think, I, th- I think the, you know, the very high-level answer is generally no. Um, you know, one, uh, anything that smacks of harassment f- because of content posted by social media companies, such as this Twitter uh, post that said this information is miscorrect. I mean, first and foremost, gets gets us thinking First Amendment, and right. and, yeah, and so uh, that's the number one. Well, they didn't that, actually say it was incorrect. They said get the facts right about mail in ballots, right? So get the facts. Um, hard to argue with facts, but I guess uh, these days, um, you know, people make arguments about what the facts are. Well, I, I think the challenge comes in is like any social media platform, because right now we talk only about Twitter, but these these issues apply to the many, many others. Uh, it's that there there is a lot of misinformation. And so th- the challenge comes in when, when the president posts misinformation, it is at a much higher and more substantial level than, say, a celebrity posting misinformation or, or uh, an average user posting it. Sure. So that's where... To me, an organization like Twitter has to have, you know, that ability to say, we know how this platform is being used and let us provide additional information. For example, you know, we've seen the spread of a lot of um, poor information about COVID and platforms are trying to have to address that as well to ensure people do not do things or engage in activities that could be actively harmful to themselves or their communities. And so, you know, I think the presidents are, are one example, but there are plenty of other moderation issues that come up or even just, even if it's a product that's a legitimate product, but you have a fake seller of that product as a right. platform, you want to disincentivize that. You want to have the ability to get that person off because they're not going to give you the legitimate item. If you're ordering, if you're ordering a luxury good and it's a 10th of the price and then it's fake, you know, a you know, a little bit of caveat emptor, but B, the platform should have the ability to step in and say this seller is not reliable. Or even if they sell good merchandise, but they they sell it to you a month and a half later, the platform should have some ability to to do that. So yeah, unfortunately, little, some of these some of these advertisements are selling something like you said about ten percent of what it's uh, generally going for, and and it seems too good to be true. And then yep. people are are sending their payments in, and they're they're just not getting anything. It's just uh, right. you know a post office box that, that's collecting money. And right. then we're seeing you know other social media organizations such as Facebook being criticized publicly for not taking enough action to to remove uh, misleading or deceptive uh, uh, ads from their and content from their platform. Right. And again, this is where it, it gets to be a huge challenge because when we say misleading information, uh, there are so many variants and varieties of it. Yes, there's information that's been posted by, by political leaders and not just in the U.S., around the world. And then you have misinformation posted by average users and then everything in between. And, you know, a big issue that people have to keep in mind is this content moderation is incredibly difficult because of the sheer volume of things people are posting and because the organizations that are doing it 
you know, for the social media companies, whether it's internal employees or external, there's a lot of human costs. They have to see a lot of information that's distasteful and disturbing. Uh, they also have to do it incredibly quickly. There have been class action, I believe at least one class action settlement uh, somewhere in the world with you know, content moderators. And then finally, AI is being used to do this because of the difficulty of, of organizations operating during the pandemic, but it's going to be prone to making a lot of mistakes. And, and just to be clear, we've seen people complain about you know, uh, racist posts or people complain about other kinds of misleading posts. And the complainant, the person who's objecting, who has a valid complaint, gets uh, suspended for a short period for calling out what they see as a real problem. And that's, that's, a, that's a complete fail by the social media companies. So there's a huge pantheon of putting all this together to make it work from day to day. All of us tend to have this idea that a post or a tweet comes up, we can look at it at our leisure and then decide how to do it with the, the vast set of facts we have. That's not really how it works for a reviewer, maybe someplace in a different part of the world who has a very, very short time to realize what this is and what does it mean if they can even apply the cultural context correctly. Well, Scott, let's uh, let's take a look in your crystal ball here. And, and where do you think this is all going to shake out in, you know, the months ahead? <laughs> what do you think we're going to end up with? I, I, You know, as lawyers, we're always hesitant to make predictions, aren't we? <laughs> right. I won't hold you to it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. I, I think we're going to see that, you know, I know there's at least been one lawsuit that's that's already been filed there of this executive order. And, and I wonder about how much standing folks are going to have until we see really concrete actions coming up. Uh, and secondly, the platforms are very much in a strong position with, with case law on 230. So it seems very difficult that it's going to be dismantled by this executive order. That said... I think what we're going to see is a lot more fight about what's being done. And, and I, I'm concerned that, that the public in general has this misperception of platforms should be neutral. Things can and cannot be taken down. And who makes that determination? At the end of the day, if the platform is posting material that you don't like, that to me does mean it's operating as a, as, as a sphere of information. And each platform is going to have, may have to make its own decision about where does that line of distaste come in and, and what should yeah. they not have? Yeah. And what, I mean, shouldn't it be up to the platform and the business model? I mean, why do they, why do they have to be neutral? Uh, why does the platform have to be neutral? I mean, they may lose users if they're not neutral, but um, can't they say if there's content on here that we think is contrary to what our beliefs are, we're going to take it down. And if you don't like it, then you shouldn't be on this platform. I mean, what's to stop us from seeing, you know, a separate, you know, ultra conservative Twitter or a separate ultra liberal Twitter where you're only getting the information that you want to hear? Um, but what's to stop that from happening? Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing. We are having a very, a very um, narrow debate because we've talked Twitter, we've talked Facebook, which are just two. There are hundreds of these platforms with people trying variants uh, of what they want to do. Um, right. and, and remember, we're in the U.S., so the First Amendment does, does have a lot of sway here versus overseas in Europe, where they have rules that are very strict about what kind of content can be up and what can, you know, and, and has to be taken down. Again, they do have 
you know, first they, they have their own versions of free expression protections, but they're not as broad as ours. And, and aren't so, we already aren't we already seeing some sort of? I mean, most of these uh, major uh, social media organizations, Twitter, Facebook, they end up being echo chambers anyway, because you end up following or liking uh, posts that uh, you're already predisposed to like. Um, and so you just keep getting regurgitated back to you, your same views. And that's the algorithm that these have in place so that, you know, I'm following people that I like and that I'm interested in. And those that I, you know, don't believe are telling the truth. Um, I'm not listening to, and I'm not getting in my feeds. Um, you know, I, I never want to talk about the algorithms as this kind of perfect reflection of what's in your head or my head. Uh, is there a likelihood that you're going to be seeing more content from people you've interacted with in the past and those people are going to say things that you like? Absolutely. I think, and that's especially true for somebody like Facebook, which has so much data on, you know, who you're friends with, where you guys went to college, you know, that you went to college together, that you live in, in similar cities or have similar types of jobs versus a Twitter that, that doesn't have as rich, I think, a, a database. So I don't want to say overly that, oh, it's, it's definitely an echo chamber, but there can be, particularly the fact that, that we individually also will see posts that we don't interact with. I think the bigger challenge, one of the echo chamber things I would point to is too often we're seeing news organizations looking at Twitter as if it represents the whole scope of, of opinion when it doesn't, you know, Facebook doesn't, right. there are people who don't use these, you know, for example, I use Facebook, I use Twitter, but I try and not particularly debate politics because I don't think the platforms can be the strongest place to have those debates. Cause you and I will talk for 25 minutes to just get to where we are right now on Twitter, that, that kind of interaction is going to be reduced to 2.5 milliseconds. You know, right. the other thing is I, I think you can turn this around and use these tools to look at other people who you don't normally follow. You don't normally see and see what's going on or see what trends are trending in either other parts of the world or in the U S and say, let me try and get different kinds of information. But yes, there is obviously an incentive for the platforms. They're still businesses. They're based on the attention economy. As, as Mark Zuckerberg said, we sell ads, Senator, you know, and so we, we cannot forget the business thing. And remember, too, we're talking organic posts. Um, all of the political organizations, all these companies are buying advertisements. I believe uh, President Trump has has outspent his Democratic opponents substantially on these platforms. And so we still would want to talk about paid ads. And is there a challenge for a moderation type of decision when you're making money from political from political advertisements. I know Twitter said they were going to issue political ads probably to help them with some of this content issue. Right. Well, Scott, ver uh, thank you very much for sharing your insights on this uh, very important topic. There's another topic I want to get to that uh, you've been involved in. Uh, I know you're uh, working uh, as co-chair of the Bar Association's Social Media Committee. Uh, yeah. There's been some changes to the social, uh, to the laws uh, and rules of ethics regarding advertising uh, that pertain to social media. And you're taking a look at uh, some of those changes and how they impact uh, lawyers' practices around the country. Tell us a little bit about the changes to the rules of professional responsibility and, and how they may impact lawyers when it pertains to social media. Right. Uh, first off, um, I am co-chair, as you said, of the social media committee, and uh, I've got to do my recruiting. If anyone is interested in social media and the law, how it works in litigation or 
your day-to-day practice, please reach out to myself or co-chair Ignatius Grande. We would love to have uh, more folks uh, join and add their talents. Second thing, we publish the social media ethics guidelines. It's in its uh, fourth iteration with the fifth one hopefully coming up soon. And it's day-to-day practical tips for lawyers. I want to post on social to promote my practice. I want to uh, do investigations in a jury trial. What can I do and what are my ethics guidelines? Now, turning to uh, the question you asked, the American Bar Association publishes, of course, the model rules of professional conduct. Those rules were changed, I believe it was in 2018, to uh, take advertising rules, which which were very uh, structured and stilted, and loosen them up in such a way that lawyers can particularly now engage on social media and electronic media platforms so that they can reach out to, to folks to find them, to give them good information, to build practices, to be more engaged in the community. What the committee is trying to do is look at, in all of our publications, as well as in our subcommittees, Um, how lawyers can get out there more and correct a lot of this misinformation about how the law works that we're seeing, as well as build their practices. And so what we've got is we've got two subcommittees uh, addressing social media jury instructions and deciding what to do on those, as well as the advertising rules. And we may produce a product to help lawyers across the country. That's what the guidelines have done to say, how can I use social media? How can I build my practice? How can I engage in things under these new rules, even if my state hasn't yet adopted it. Uh, I believe only Connecticut and Virginia have adopted the new rules, but a number of states are looking at these rules. Uh, One other thing to be aware of, too, is we're seeing a number of states, California and Utah, are introducing ethics sandboxes for delivery of of, of sort of quasi-legal services. And can folks who are not lawyers deliver some some of those uh, legal type services? And so we're trying to address and look at that as a committee as well to say, where do lawyers fit? Because I think, you know, the best people to give advice on legal issues are lawyers who go to, you know, go to the courthouse or practice like you do in in a very specified area and can say, this is how it's actually going to happen. Yeah, don't we have an issue here? Now, I mean, we've got very strict guidelines for lawyers and lawyers advertising, uh, whether it be on the internet or or otherwise. Lawyers have their hands tied by rules of professional advertising uh, because lawyers are officers of the court and are held to a high standard. But then we have these non-lawyer legal service providers who are not bound by the rules of ethics and are using technology in a way that lawyers can't. Uh, Wouldn't it be better to let lawyers uh, be able to use the technology uh, in a little bit, uh, facilitate their use of technology rather than kind of punt this off to non-lawyer tech companies? Yeah, I'm a firm believer that that the best thing to happen in this space where consumers are saying legal services are very expensive. But ironically, with the rise of online platforms and online tools, they have more agreements than ever. You know, I'll give you an example. You go get your car service at the dealer. You bring your laptops, you can do a little work. And the first thing you see is you want to connect their Wi-Fi network and you have to agree to their terms of service, right? Right. That was something didn't exist 20 years ago. And now, you know, that terms of service 
if it's a confidentiality issue or it's some kind of mistake, that terms of service in some instances may be relevant. All of us have agreed to hundreds of these things with the online services that we use. And so there is a role for lawyers here. So going right to your question, I think the answer is, you know, we have to write the rules so that lawyers can feel free to engage directly with the public. We used to be able to do this in bowling leagues and face-to-face, and now that's all moved online. So the rules should reflect that. Second, lawyers should be encouraged to be online. Right now, what I see is a lot of folks say, I'm super concerned that if I do something and I do something wrong, I'm going to get in trouble. And I've seen a lot of edge cases where lawyers maybe post something that you know an average Facebook user will post and they end up in discipline. Uh, and so we need to have some clearer guidelines about what's going on. And one example is, is the rule of confidentiality, 1.6. Right now, information that you and I receive related to an engagement and related to a matter, you know, we have a heightened duty of confidentiality. So even if the case went all the way up to the Court of Appeals here in New York, if it were our client, we may have to get a waiver from that client to publicize that, where the firm next door can talk all they want about the very public information in the case. You and I couldn't talk about that public information. I think that's a really good example of, of how the rule is doing a disservice to us. And then just people being very scared about labeling, you know, New York's in a, a, a state that requires attorney advertising, or is this solicitation? We've got to simplify those rules that so that folks can see that. I, I've got a slide on a presentation I do where I talk about the revised model rules for advertising is, uh, I think, about 325 words. The corresponding New York sections of the Rules of Professional Conduct 7.1 and 7.2 are around 1,300 words. And so, you know, it makes it very clear that a lawyer who wants to advertise, if there's not enough um, ROI in it, they're just going to say, I won't do it. I'll just stick with traditional methods. Well, as we know, New York is a special place. And so <laughs> why say something in, in 300 words when you can say it in, in 1,300? Yeah. Uh, so, Scott uh, Maloof, thank you very much for sharing your insights, uh, both on uh, social media as it applies to the public and uh, presidents, as well as social media as it applies to attorneys. Thank you for your, uh, your time here on Miranda Warnings. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was great. I really appreciate you doing this. Yeah, and Scott, we have, these are all obviously very important topics. We've got a lighthearted feature, music, book, or movie, where you can share something that you've been looking at while you've been in you know, lockdown, uh, something that our <laughs> listeners might be able to, to take away. Gotcha. Well, I'll tell you, the book, and I, I started reading this before lockdown, and I still haven't finished it, but I should. It's um, How to Think like a Roman emperor, the Stoic philosophy of Marcus Aurelius hmm. uh, by an author named David Robinson, uh, sorry, Robert's son. And uh, it's really interesting because it, it, you know, brings you back to Aurelius and what he, his life was like and, and his practice of Stoicism in his writings. But it also talks a little bit about uh, Robertson is, uh, I believe, um, a behavioral psychologist. And he talks a little bit about modern practices and how Stoicism is applicable to it. And so it's a really interesting thing. And it's also helpful, you know, in these times where we see uh, daily frustrations to go back and look at the challenges those folks had and give ourselves a little perspective. So it's an interesting read, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, the Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. 
And was that a recommendation that was made to you from uh, one of President Trump's tweets? <laughs> oh, if only. If only. I suspect my wife told me to buy that. Maybe she's telling me something. <laughs> Well, Scott Maloof, thank you very much for being with us on Miranda Warnings. Uh, uh, Thank you again for your time, and please stay well. You too. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.